Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of suicide that may be upsetting for some listeners. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In February 2011, police arrived at a luxury condo overlooking Sunny Isles Beach, Florida. They entered the eerily silent apartment. The smell of smoke lingered in the air. A mess of items sat on the living room table. At first, they appeared random, but upon closer inspection, it was as if someone was trying to tell them something. There was a DVD case for a psychological thriller called Trapped, a worker's compensation claim related to brain trauma, and a copy of Sports Illustrated. Its headline read, Concussions, the hits that are changing the game and the hits no one is noticing. When the cops entered the master bedroom, they saw the large, deceased body of Dave Duerson, a former safety for the Chicago Bears. He was sprawled naked on his bed. A revolver lay beside him. Though suicide seemed probable, the method was strange. Duerson had shot himself in his chest, not the head, which potentially meant a slower, more excruciating death. It later became clear that this final act was one of rebellion, a fourth down Hail Mary, a last stand against a disease that had taken his mind. Duerson had shot himself in the torso to preserve the evidence. On the last page of his suicide note, Duerson wrote one final instruction. Please see that my brain is given to the NFL's brain bank. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on the National Football League's attempts to cover up the detrimental effects of repeated concussions. Evidence suggested that multiple hits to the head have caused alarming mental health issues later in life. Instead of taking the science seriously, the NFL seemed to go on the offensive, denying the claims. This left many athletes to endure the consequences of a job in which head trauma was nearly inevitable. This week, we'll meet the doctors who discovered the condition and fought to bring it to public attention. We'll also learn about former players whose lives fell apart after taking too many hits. Next week, we'll explore a few conspiracy theories, including evidence that the NFL orchestrated a full-blown cover-up and that racism allowed the league to ignore the problem. We'll also examine the other side of the argument that fears about concussions may be overblown. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It was the first day of training camp for the Pittsburgh Steelers, a final opportunity to get into shape before the 1974 season started. Players prepared for a ruthless drill, which was so brutal that it earned the name the Nutcracker. 22-year-old newcomer Mike Webster stepped onto the field. His strength had been forged carrying 100-pound sacks of potatoes on the family farm, the same place his alcoholic father had beaten him senseless. But it was this history of heavy field work and rough abuse that made him the greatest center in NFL history. It also earned him his nickname, Iron Mike. And during his first nutcracker, his relentless power was on full display. When the whistle blew, Iron Mike slammed his helmet into another Steeler's chest. The opposing linebacker was driven to the ground with such force that everyone was left speechless. It was plays like this that led the Steelers to call themselves a collision football team. Smashing opponents wasn't part of their strategy, it was their strategy. And Webster's weapon of choice was his skull. Years into his career, another player named Jerry Sullivan noticed a thick layer of scar tissue on Webster's forehead. But Sullivan didn't see it as a bad thing. It was a badge of commitment. He admitted, I was kind of disappointed that my forehead wasn't disfigured. Except Webster's head was never properly examined. In the 80s and 90s, sports scientists focused on what could be measured. If you couldn't x-ray it or bandage it up, it probably wasn't serious. As ESPN writers Mark Fainaru-Wada and Steve Fainaru put it in their book League of Denial, the concussion was still regarded as the neurological equivalent of a stubbed toe. Before we go further, let's take a second to explain what exactly a concussion is. When someone experiences a blow to the head, the brain slaps against the skull, distorting or cutting the organ's microscopic fibers known as axons. Sometimes the victim goes blind for a second. Others lose their balance. 
When the jolt is severe, the whole system can malfunction and the person may become unconscious. When football players collide, their skulls connect with up to 150 G-forces. To put it into perspective, think of this example. If you were to drive a car into a wall at 25 miles per hour without a seatbelt, you'd smack your head into the windshield with a force of around 100 Gs. This kind of crash occurs several times in each football game. It's no surprise, then, that these weekly beatings eventually caught up to Webster. And in 1991, he decided to retire at age 39 after 17 years of football. That's around when his wife noticed his strange behavior. He had frequent bouts of rage and was plagued with paranoia. Physically, he looked like himself, but mentally, he behaved like a dementia-ridden man twice his age. No one connected this transformation to Iron Mike's career. At the time, the long-term effects of concussions were completely unknown. However, the Steelers' brain specialist, Joe Maroon, had a hunch that they might be connected. He saw how players returned to the field minutes after recovering from a knockout, even if they complained of headaches. Maroon thought the lack of recovery time might amplify the symptoms, but he had no proof. So he teamed up with Mark Lovell, the chief neuropsychologist at Allegheny General Hospital. Together, they refined a diagnostic test to measure the severity of these head injuries. That way, they could tell if a player risked further damage by continuing to play. Just after implementing the test, one athlete was sent out of the game for good. Merrill Hodge was a running back with the Chicago Bears. After he was clobbered, somebody noticed him in the locker room, unconscious. He'd stopped breathing for a whole 20 seconds. The next day, he couldn't remember his daughter's name. A few days later, Hodge called Maroon and Lovell. Hodge couldn't complete the most basic parts of the diagnostic test, like connecting a series of 25 dots. Maroon told him to quit football. Hodge was scared of losing out, but ultimately he followed the doctor's orders. In 1994, he retired at the age of 29. Hodge wasn't the only player who was badly battered that year. In fact, three quarterbacks were knocked out on one vicious Sunday. Chris Miller of the LA Rams was launched backward when a player slammed into his chest, causing him to smack his head against the turf. Vinny Testaverde, a quarterback for the Cleveland Browns, also lost consciousness during a game. He sat out the next two due to blurred vision and head pain. When Wilbur Marshall, a 240-pound linebacker, speared his helmet into the chin of Cowboys quarterback Troy Aikman, the impact was so hard that it splattered blood across his face. After three quarterbacks all suffered head traumas, the period was deemed the season of the concussion. And yet, despite this ominous label, it took an unlikely figure to draw attention to the issue. A sports agent named Lee Steinberg, who was also the inspiration for Jerry Maguire, was Aikman's representative that year. During a winning conference championship game against the San Francisco 49ers, a defensive lineman accidentally kneed Aikman in the head. The team doctor thought he was okay, but they sent him to the Baylor University Medical Center just in case. 
Outside, crowds were cheering and horns were honking. Aikman had just won the city a trip to the Super Bowl. But inside his darkened hospital room, Aikman was alone and confused. He looked at his agent and asked, Lee, why am I here? Steinberg was shocked. He realized that most agents encouraged their athletes to play every game. But now, he felt guilty for pushing Aikman to the brink. It spurred Steinberg to take action. In 1995, he held a seminar in Newport Beach, California, where athletes talked openly about head injuries. Afterwards, concussions were on everyone's mind, and in every newspaper's sports section. In response to the so-called season of the concussion, a Cleveland columnist took aim at the NFL directly. He accused them of creating a culture that thrived on violence and for making money off of the pain of players. The NFL's commissioner, Paul Tagliabue, described the article as pack journalism, essentially accusing the writers of ganging up to push the same biased and sensationalized talking points. But Tagliabue couldn't ignore the problem forever. So he created the Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee, or MTBI, to investigate the issue. But his choice for chairman raised eyebrows. He appointed Elliot Pellman, a doctor who specializes in rheumatology. In other words, Pellman had very little brain science experience. Perhaps that's why, in an interview with Sports Illustrated, Pellman dismissed concussions as a mere occupational risk. He also claimed that veteran players were less affected by the condition because they could unscramble their brains faster than rookies. Except Iron Mike Webster was no rookie, and his mental health was far from unscrambled. Despite earning $1 million during his last few seasons, he lost his house because he suddenly stopped paying the bills. In addition, Webster left his family for weeks on end to pursue get-rich-quick schemes, which all failed. Eventually, he began sleeping at a Greyhound station in downtown Pittsburgh. His 19-year-old son Colin started taking care of him, but Webster was gone in both mind and body. He downed Ritalin, a drug to treat ADHD like candy. Cracks in his feet made it painful to walk. But the worst sign of his neurological degeneration occurred one night when Colin found Webster urinating into the oven. In explanation, Webster said, Oh, Jesus, I thought I was going in a urinal. Instead of seeing a doctor, Webster tried his hand at grisly home remedies. For instance, because Webster's diet consisted of junk food and sweets, his teeth fell out. Instead of going to the dentist, he used superglue to put them back in. To fix the fissures in his feet, he wrapped his soles with duct tape. Even more horrifying, Webster had so much trouble sleeping that he used a stun gun to electrocute himself until he passed out. In 1998, a lawyer helped Webster file for disability benefits with the NFL, but the application process was arduous. As a result, his attorney sent him to a series of doctors to back up his case. When one asked if he'd ever been in a car wreck, Webster replied, Oh, probably about 25,000 times or so. In 1999, the NFL's disability board finally ruled that Webster could receive benefits. 
they admitted that he was totally and permanently disabled as a direct result of the injuries sustained in football. However, the ruling was kept completely secret. The NFL had whispered a confession. Meanwhile, they continued to loudly deny any link between long-term disability and concussions sustained during football. In other words, Webster's benefits were a hollow victory that did nothing to change the institution that had saddled him with lifelong injuries. Worse, Webster didn't receive benefits for long. Three years later, he suffered a heart attack in a Walmart parking lot. Then, in the early morning of September 24, 2002, Webster was pronounced dead. He was only 50 years old. In the midst of his grief, Webster's lawyer received a phone call from the coroner's office with an odd request. It was clear that Webster died of a heart attack, but they weren't interested in the cause of death. They wanted permission to open up the player's head. Coming up, the secrets ingrained in Iron Mike's brain. Hi, listeners. They say there's someone for everyone. A soul to share your secrets with, a companion to grow old with, a conspirator to commit crimes with. Starting this February on Spotify, learn about the lethal and legendary lovers who fought the law in the ParCast limited series, Criminal Couples. If you've ever referred to your best friend or beloved as your partner in crime, this exclusive series is for you. Beginning February 1st, discover the radical side of romance with a collection of unlawful love stories from shows across the ParCast network. Track the nefarious exploits of Bonnie and Clyde. Meet married mafiosos Jackie and Thelma Wright. And uncover the secret lives of alleged spies Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Fall for the most famous and feared pairs in history in the Spotify original from ParCast, criminal couples enjoy two-part episodes every monday follow criminal couples free and exclusively on spotify this episode is brought to you by terminix terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life at least not the ones you're thinking of but they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. The legendary Pittsburgh Steeler Iron Mike Webster was famous for his resilience and strength. After bowing out of football, he formed dementia-like symptoms. Then he descended into a torrent of financial trouble likely brought on by his compromised decision-making faculties. Webster's untimely death at age 50 sent shockwaves throughout the country. 
This caused scientists to heighten their efforts surveying the disastrous effects of head collisions. Meanwhile, the NFL continued insisting that there were no long-term consequences. Their denials were bolstered by the fact that no one had ever opened up a player's skull to see if there was any neurological damage. And then, Nigerian-born pathologist Bennett Omalu came along. Omalu, unlike other 33-year-olds living in Pittsburgh, wasn't a big football fan. He viewed the sport as a pointless ritual. But even he was familiar with the recent death of Iron Mike Webster. He'd seen the player's most embarrassing moments aired for entertainment. He wondered how this once-revered athlete could have sunk so low. A spiritual man, it could be said that Omalu viewed being a forensic pathologist as a religious calling. An autopsy was the last chance to give the deceased a voice before they were silenced forever. On receiving Webster's body, he spoke to it, saying, you need to help me tell the world what happened to you. The death certificate said that Webster suffered from depression secondary to post-concussion syndrome. Omalu saw the player's curled fingers, shaped as if forever holding a football. He noted the thick shelf of scar tissue where Webster had used his head like a battering ram. However, his brain showed no obvious signs of trauma. At 3.5 pounds, it appeared healthy. And yet, Omalu sensed that something was amiss. He sliced the brain tissue and bathed it in a chemical to show abnormalities. When Omalu placed the specimen under the microscope, he was baffled by what he saw. Insidious brown spots splattered the tissue like a Jackson Pollock painting. These marks indicated an excessive buildup of a compound called tau protein. Alzheimer's disease also creates abnormal levels of tau protein, referred to as neurofibrillary tangles, which seep around healthy brain tissue. It prevents neurons in various parts of the brain from communicating properly, which can in turn affect someone's mood, emotions, and memory. However, Webster's brain wasn't like an Alzheimer's patient's. Among other differences, it didn't have any of the beta amyloid plaques that one would expect to see in someone with the degenerative disease. It was unlike anything Omalu had ever heard of. While Omalu worked on Webster, the NFL continued its own research. The organization's Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee collaborated with Joe Maroon, the man who had formed the diagnostic test for concussions. They published their analyses in a respected journal called Neurosurgery. However, some studies fumbled the ball. For example, one paper said that repeated concussions posed no danger to players. Their reasoning was, since athletes headed back into the field after being concussed, they must be fine. Otherwise, the medical staff wouldn't have cleared them. They also implied that there was no brain damage in NFL athletes because none had been found. Essentially, if you closed your eyes, the problem didn't exist. After the paper, reviewers ridiculed the MTBI as industry-funded research. Normally, neurosurgery might not have published such illogical claims, 
but the editor-in-chief knew the story would bring his staid academic magazine more mainstream readers. So, in a likely bid to garner exposure, he was happy to turn his paper into a megaphone for the NFL. As a result, study after study asserted that head trauma wasn't an issue for football players. The research was so clearly biased that in academic circles, neurosurgery gained a new nickname, Journal of No NFL Concussions. Meanwhile, the carnage continued every Sunday. Pile-ups in the pit sent athletes into a veritable meat grinder. Then, when they retired, players were spit out to face the consequences on their own with no disability support. Justin Strelzik, a Steelers lineman, certainly could have used the help. After years of thrashings, he'd shifted from a fun-loving, intelligent husband into a delusional wreck. Strelzik complained of depression and was haunted by mysterious voices he called the Evil Ones. Then, in September 2004, at age 36, he dialed up old friends to apologize for things that were long in the past. They thought he sounded strange. The next day, Strelzik hopped in his pickup truck and sped down the interstate. When state troopers flashed their lights, he'd led them on a 37-mile chase. The pursuit ended when Strelzik swerved across the median at 100 miles per hour into oncoming traffic. He slammed into an oil tanker carrying corrosive acid. The resulting explosion was massive. Strelzik was killed instantly. Strelzik's death was a mystery. No one knew where he was going or why it had happened. But Dr. Amalu was confident that Webster's brain held the answer. Amalu had read about a phenomenon called dementia pugilistica, or punch-drunk syndrome. The disorder was first discovered in boxers who experienced similar symptoms, delusion, violent behavior, and memory loss. If punches could slowly demolish a brain, maybe tackles could too. As a result, Amalu wanted to give the condition a new name one that didn't infer that punch-drunk syndrome was exclusive to boxers. So in 2005, he coined the term chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. And then Amalu submitted his research to the neurosurgery magazine. Almost immediately, the NFL launched a blitz against his work, calling for his study to be retracted. If it was, Amalu's scientific career would be over. About this moment, Amalu later said, there were times I wished I'd never looked at Mike Webster's brain. I didn't know it would mean walking into a minefield. Luckily, the NFL's request to pull the article was denied. Amalu had done solid work, and what's more, he would soon have another brain to back up his research. Like Webster, Terry Long was a big-hearted offensive lineman for the Pittsburgh Steelers. However, Long used steroids to pack muscle onto his compact frame. When he was suspended for drugs in 1991, he tried taking his own life, first by running his car in the garage, then by eating rat poison. Long also spiraled into depression and ill-advised financial schemes after he retired. 
In one of these gambits, he claimed $1.1 million in insurance money after one of his businesses burned down. When authorities found out that the fire had been set by Long himself, he drank a gallon of Drano in an attempt to end his life. Then on June 7th, 2005, Long's efforts were finally successful. He died by suicide after consuming antifreeze. When Amalu examined Long's brain, he found the same buildup of tau protein. This meant that he had one more piece of evidence of CTE in a football player. Once again, Amalu's findings were shared with the public. The MTBI committee saw this move as an outright declaration of war. As a result, they launched another counterattack on Amalu. This time, Maroon criticized his findings as preposterous, not appropriate, and just not right. But Maroon's aggressive denials might have been more personally motivated. Maroon had been the Steelers' neurological consultant during Long's tenure with the team. If Amalu was right, it was not only a condemnation of the NFL, it meant that Maroon was partially responsible for the player's death. It's not surprising then that he fought tooth and nail against the claim. To him, it wasn't science, it was a personal accusation. Soon after, Amalu had yet another chance to confirm his theory. Philadelphia Eagles safety, Andre Waters, was one of the most feared hitters in the NFL. The Philadelphia Inquirer once asked Waters how many concussions he'd had in his career. He replied, I think I lost count at 15. I just wouldn't say anything. I'd sniff some smelling salts, then go right back in there. But after retirement, nothing could wake Waters from his deep depression. Then in November 2006, Waters shot himself in the head. Chris Nowinski, a former wrestler, saw the news as an opportunity. After his own traumatic brain injury, concussion awareness became his crusade. He knew Omalu had found CTE in Webster and Long. A third discovery could help turn the Nigerian scientist's hypothesis into a proven fact. Nowinski gave Waters' sister a call. He explained his own experiences and told her about Webster and Long, gentle giants whose brains had degraded. The family agreed to let Omalu examine Waters' brain. Despite the bullet wound, there was enough tissue left for an autopsy. Again, Amalu found signs of CTE in the athlete's cerebral matter. But Amalu now had second thoughts about publishing his work. He challenged one of the most powerful organizations in the world and nearly lost his job over it. He didn't like his odds. Then in 2006, Amalu received a call from a well-known neurosurgeon named Julian Bales. Bales had also been researching the brains of NFL players with dementia-like symptoms. But the league's doctors were dismissing his findings just as they had tried to discredit Amalu's. Bales wanted to help. The two doctors held a meeting. Bales even invited Maroon, the Steelers' neurosurgeon who'd criticized Amalu's work. Bales believed Maroon could be reasonable. He gambled that if Amalu presented the evidence to him in person, perhaps Maroon would switch teams. More than a decade before, 
Maroon was the one blowing the whistle on the NFL. But as he sat before Omalu, watching his presentation, he realized that he had grown complacent. His attacks against Omalu were on the wrong side of science. As a result, when Amalu finished explaining his findings, Maroon leaned back to take it in. Finally, he responded, If only 10% of mothers in America begin to conceive of football as a dangerous game, that is the end of football. Despite this risk, Maroon knew it was time to make this information public. He had no idea that the former wrestler, Chris Nowinski, had set that ball in motion. The Andre Waters scoop was already on its way to the New York Times. The paper ran the piece on the front page next to a picture of Andre Waters. The headline was blunt, reading, Expert Ties X-Player Suicide to Brain Damage. With that, CTE was no longer a niche theory that the NFL could just bat away. As the authors of League of Denial put it, January 18th, 2007 was the day the NFL's concussion problem hit the mainstream. Coming up, a fight breaks out in the halls of Congress. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. When Dr. Bennett Amalu discovered brain damage in deceased NFL players, the league responded with rabid denials. The MTBI committee published claims that concussions were rare in the NFL. They went further, saying that when concussions did occur, they didn't cause long-term damage at all. Ira Kasson, a neurologist, was one of the leading members of the MTBI committee, In 2007, he appeared on HBO's Real Sports. When he was asked if there was any evidence to link head injuries with depression, Kasson said no. How about dementia? Kasson said no. What about early-onset Alzheimer's? No again. Kasson's denials were so fervent that he earned himself a new nickname that night, Dr. No. But it was difficult for the NFL to continue its strategy of deny, deny, deny. So in the summer of 2007, they convened to discuss Omalu's research. One man was glaringly missing from the invite list, Omalu himself. Julian Bale said they were trying to blackball him, lock him out, marginalize him. They succeeded. Omalu was pushed to the fringe, 
And with his self-promoting style, he became a polarizing figure even in the scientific community. New York Giants linebacker Harry Carson thought Amalu's fall from the spotlight occurred for two reasons. He wasn't American, and he was black. Carson joined the chorus of voices that became critical of the league. He struggled with depression after his 1988 retirement. But years later, a doctor finally diagnosed him with post-concussion syndrome. Suddenly, his symptoms made sense. He felt validated, but also angry. The NFL had abandoned players like him and Mike Webster. When Carson was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2006, he used his acceptance speech to spotlight the issue. He pleaded with his former employer, saying, you have to take better care of your own. With so much public pressure, the NFL was forced to provide a solution. One of these fixes was the 88 plan, named for John Mackey, whose jersey shared the same number. Mackey was a legendary tight end, but long after the stadium lights had faded, he was diagnosed with dementia. By his late 50s, his wife Sylvia described his illness as a slow, deteriorating, ugly, caregiver-killing, degenerative, brain-destroying, tragic horror. The 88 plan promised up to $88,000 per year for players experiencing dementia, Parkinson's, or other neurological disorders. But the income wasn't even enough to cover the medical needs of the man it was named after. This was just the beginning of the NFL's very public reckoning. In September 2007, the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation convened in Washington. The hearing examined the accusations that the NFL's retirement program was failing its players. And since CTE was inextricably linked to this topic, it dominated the conversation. Brent Boyd, who'd retired after six seasons with the Minnesota Vikings, took to the stand. Unlike Carson's gentle Hall of Fame speech, Boyd was ready to hit hard. He told the room that he was tormented by an invisible illness brought on by his concussions. He alleged that the NFL had destroyed his medical files and denied his disability claims. He said their strategy was delay, deny, and hope that I put a bullet through my head to end their problem. Dave Dewerson, a former defensive back who played for the Chicago Bears, also took the witness stand but he told a different story. After retiring, Dewerson worked as a trustee on the NFL's disability board. He wholeheartedly defended the league. He also added a bizarre note. Since his dad had Alzheimer's and never played a professional sport, then brain damage probably didn't come from the NFL. Things escalated in the hallway after the hearing. Dewerson lobbed profanities at a couple of his former colleagues, ready to strip off his tie and throw down. The outburst seemed out of character to those who had known him. Later, many would come to understand why he was so reactionary. Dewerson was suffering the same condition. Meanwhile, in Bedford, Massachusetts, another brain disease expert was stepping onto the field, Dr. Anne McKee. She was a lifelong Green Bay Packers fan and a true cheesehead. 
When Dr. McKee first noticed dementia symptoms in boxers, she wondered how many Alzheimer's diagnoses were actually due to preventable injury. She described it saying, I've been looking at oranges for years, and all of a sudden it was like, this is a banana. Soon, she'd be able to prove her theory with John Grimsley, a fierce linebacker who had played for the Houston Oilers. Grimsley was an intelligent guy. He'd created a successful company during retirement and had a great relationship with his family. But over the years, Grimsley's mental health deteriorated. He'd lose his temper at the slightest annoyance. When Grimsley's family caught a news segment about CTE, the symptoms looked familiar. His son said, Mom, Dad is showing all those signs already. Shortly after the newscast, Grimsley bought a handgun. One day, while attempting to clean the pistol, he accidentally shot himself in the chest and died. He was only 45 years old. Due to their suspicions, his family sent his brain to Dr. McKee. She found that Grimsley's neurological samples were riddled with tau protein. McKee said it was like a degenerative disease on steroids. Then, after she autopsied and found CTE in another NFL player named Tom McHale, McKee claimed, I have never seen this disease in the general population, only in these athletes. It's a crisis, and anyone who doesn't recognize the severity of the problem is in tremendous denial. The NFL wasted no time. The league's Dr. No called her up and invited her to headquarters to present her findings. She didn't know the organization's reputation with scientists or that they'd spent the last five years destroying Amalu's name. So McKee packed her slides and her bags and headed to New York City. McKee walked into the NFL's Park Avenue office. Two dozen men took their seats, the MTBI committee in the flesh. Outside of the organization's lawyer, she was the only woman in the room. As soon as she presented her evidence, McKee was peppered with questions. Dr. Casson interrupted the most, at times even mocking her. She felt like they were thinking, is that girl saying something? Could we get a doctor in here, please? Could we get someone in here who actually knows what they're talking about? Seemingly goaded by Casson, many on the committee bombarded her with their version of the truth. They claimed that her so-called CTE symptoms were actually caused by steroids, nutritional supplements, and diabetes, not head trauma. They had nothing to back up their claims, but they were in a desperate position. For years, they'd taken a very public stance that CTE didn't exist. To say otherwise was to admit that they'd screwed up, or worse, outright lied. On October 28, 2009, the NFL's new commissioner, Roger Goodell, kept that position in mind when the House Judiciary Committee questioned him about the studies coming out of the scientific community. Chairman, Michigan Democrat John Conyers, wasted no time pointing fingers. He started, Everyone that plays football at any level knows it is a dangerous sport. There should be no surprise when a football player separates his shoulder, twists an ankle, busts a knee. But there appears to be growing evidence that playing football may be linked to long-term brain damage. 
However, it was Congresswoman Linda Sanchez of California who made the boldest assertions. She compared the NFL to Big Tobacco, suggesting that the organization had used its power to discredit scientists, cherry-pick data, and push forth its own faulty conclusions. Ultimately, the hearing was a touchdown for science. Within weeks, Dr. No was removed as co-chair of the MTBI committee. NFL spokesperson Greg Aiello told the New York Times that, based on the research, it was quite obvious that concussions can lead to long-term issues. It had been 15 years since the NFL created the MTBI committee to study the effects of head trauma and seven years since Iron Mike Webster's brain lit up like a Christmas tree with tau protein. But 2009 was the first time the league admitted these concussions had lingering effects. The tides were turning. Even the league's ardent defenders were jumping ship. The most tragic example was Dave Duerson, the defensive back who'd shattered at his fellow players during the Senate hearing. Dewerson eventually succumbed to the same illness that plagued Webster, Waters, and the others. In a last act of rebellion, he shot himself in the chest and donated his brain to Dr. McKee. He hoped his cerebrum could add to the evidence against his former employer. The NFL took a look at the scoreboard and drew up a new play. In 2013, it announced that an independent neurologist would be on the sidelines at every game. They devised a symptom checklist and stated no player would rejoin the game after getting concussed. However, it was too late. Too much damage had already been done. A cascade of litigation flooded the desks at the NFL's legal office. More than 3,000 retired players were suing, almost a quarter of all former athletes. The most striking suit alleged that the NFL had created a fraudulent research arm. That year, the league agreed to pay $765 million to former players and their relatives. While this sounds like a large chunk of change, it was a drop in the bucket for the NFL. That year alone, the organization had netted nearly $10 billion in revenue. In many ways, the League had won in their rivalry with science. There was no admission of guilt, no public condemnation. Paul Tagliabu, the commissioner who created the MTBI committee, was never put to trial. There was no chance for anyone to ask the famous Watergate question. What did the NFL commissioner know, and when did he know it? Also, in relation to players who had already died while displaying signs of CTE, the deal only applied to those who'd passed from 2006 to 2014. This excluded Mike Webster, the first football player to be diagnosed with the condition. It also shut the door on future litigation, even as evidence continues to mount. In 2017, Dr. McKee published a study in which she'd found CTE in 177 out of 202 football players she'd examined across the country. This included 14 high schoolers. Dr. McKee's terrifying conclusion was that with each additional year of playing football, a person had a 30% higher risk of having CTE at death. 
Next time, we'll dive deeper into the theories surrounding the NFL's concussion crisis. Conspiracy theory number one. CTE is not prevalent in football, and its long-term effects are widely overblown. Conspiracy theory number two. The NFL worked with the tobacco industry to hide the risks of concussions. Conspiracy theory number three. Racism allowed the league to ignore the CTE problem. The love of American football cannot be understated. In 2012, 23 of the 25 top-rated shows on TV were NFL games. Even when a game was moved from Sunday to Tuesday because of snowfall, sports anchors knew the ratings would stay the same. One such journalist said the NFL was protected even from acts of God. It's too bad that it isn't the same for its players. Every Sunday, they gather on the field. We chant and praise their divine skills and heroic stamina. But football is a strange religion. As we watch our favorite athletes, we're not only worshiping them as idols, we're sacrificing them. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of the NFL and CTEs. For more information on the NFL and CTEs, we found League of Denial by Mark Fainaru Wada and Steve Fainaru helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Ben Caro, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Abiageli Adimegu. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan and research by Brad Klein and Brian Petrus. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Listeners, don't forget to check out the new Parcast Limited series, Criminal Couples. From apocalyptic cult leaders to bank-robbing bandits, these couples give new meaning to Till Death Do Us Part. Enjoy two-part episodes every Monday starting February 1st. Follow Criminal Couples free and exclusively on Spotify.